you had to perform on the day because it was all about winning that regatta, nothing else mattered. A lot of the build-up for me was to make sure everybody was used to being beaten by me. So I made very clear in every line-up, in every training session, for me it wasn't necessarily about striving for an, a, who could be the absolute best. I made sure I beat the guys I needed to beat every single time we went sailing, so they got used to it. I hadn't really thought about it. It never occurred to me that you could get paid to go sailing. It just seemed like quite an adventure. It was a two-year project and taking two years out of my you know, business career wasn't going to be, wasn't going to make any difference. So it was like a great opportunity to go somewhere, meet some different people, do some different things. whole 2009 whatever you want to call it where we were the challenger of record and um, you know dealing with Oracle and Alinghi and stuff like that was a pretty distasteful experience. Time when it ended I was quite happy that it was over and I could do something different. Like it was, it all was quite personal. Few people have done as much in sailing as John Cutler. He's been involved in five America's Cups, and next month will go to his fifth Olympics. He came home from his first with a medal, and is also a multiple world champion and Admiral's Cup winner. He's been a professional sailor for more than 30 years, and also been heavily involved as a coach and official. Welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. John talks about his journey from lanky teenager who discovered the sport after moving to New Zealand to his place now as an elder statesman and most things in between. He never really thought you could make a career out of sailing and still wonders how he has in an industry he's labelled as precarious because of its ruthlessness, politics and egos. John offers a good perspective on the sport and his place in it in this podcast. He's well-liked and well-respected, and it felt like we were really only scratching the surface at times, such as the vastness of his experience. Well, John Cutler, welcome to Broadreach Radio. Thanks very much. I know you're excited to, to be appearing on there. I've been waiting by the phone for my call for a while. So, yep, um, yep, quite a long time by the sound of it, but yes, no, no, it'll be good. Um, when I was planning for this chat, I don't really know where to start because you've been involved in so many different aspects of sailing um, over your time. But I think probably the most logical is just to look at what, we're, um, what you're about to embark on in the next few weeks. Um, so you're heading off to the Tokyo Olympics next month. In what capacity is that? So I'm going as the um, rules advisor for the sailing team, obviously. But yes, as rules advisor. And if anyone wants my opinion on any other subject, tactics or strategy or anything like that, then obviously I'm there as a sounding board as well. 
So what number Olympics will this be for you in various forms? This will be, I think this is the fifth one. So athlete, reserve, coach, coach, official, rules advisor, I guess. So I'm not sure what other steps I could still do. Are you getting more important as we get along? No, I think I've gone sideways and down pretty comfortably. <laughs> what sort of Olympics are you expecting? You know, we're hearing a lot about uh, the, the scenario that's sort of unfolding in Japan and there's so many restrictions and you're now going into your fifth. So how is this going to compare to others, do you think? I think it's going to be fairly, I mean, obviously it's going to be very restrictive. I think there's going to be a lot of um, things you can and cannot do, or very few things you can do and lots of things you can't do. I think obviously this, obviously COVID is going to be the number one um, priority for the organisers. And then for the, for the competitors, they've got all of that to deal with. And then the logistics of where you stay, how long it takes to get to the venue is going to be more difficult than uh, all the planning was in what people were working towards. And it's also going to be incredibly hot and humid. And if it's a really hot, humid time in Japan, it's going to be very unpleasant. So you're looking forward to it? To see how it all comes together, yes. And I think, um, I think one thing is that we've got just an absolutely incredible team of sailors so i'm looking forward to seeing them uh, perform under pressure and uh, come away with the with the medals well i'm guessing there's one in particular uh namely josh jr in the fin class mm -hmm. uh, you've worked pretty closely with with josh over the last couple of cycles actually yep. as you went to rio as yep. his coach and you've also worked with andy maloney um in the last cycle as well yep. what what have you sort of seen in them in that cycle I think, you know, I think they've just matured. You know, I think JJ's gone from, you know, an incredible sort of natural talent and then with his, uh, you know, working with Andy, uh, winning two America's Cups and all the experiences that he's gone from there, he's now, you know, an incredibly, not only an incredibly talented natural sailor, but it's now coupled with this... Uh, you know, more killer instinct that he's got from working with um, Andy and Team New Zealand. They've worked incredibly closely together, you know, sharing everything from technical information to, to funding even. Mm -hmm. What did you make of it when you heard about the proposal? I, I was impressed that they were considering that because uh, every pairing that I've ever seen you start and you say you're going to work together and that's what you start off and you work and you share information but as you get closer and closer to selection I've only seen people just hold a little bit back or they just um, you know they start trying to prepare for their own selection rather than the best person's selection and uh, you know I was I'm really impressed that they've managed to uh do what they said they were going to do. This is what they said on day one they were going to do, and they've done it and not deviated from it. So uh, that's pretty impressive. Do you think other sailors or teams could do a similar thing, or is it the fact that they've got such a special relationship that it that it only works for them? So far, it's only I think it's only really worked for them. But I think that uh, a lot of 
sailors and probably other sports could learn a lot from this. I think it's a, it's, it just shows that trying to make it to the Olympics and these guys have each won the Finn Gold Cup, um, it's almost impossible to do on your own. So why not do it closely with another competitor and a series of different coaches along the way and uh, pick up as much as you can. How does it, I guess, differ then to what you experienced in your time? Because you were, you know, fairly successful fin sailor as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, my my theory back then was that we had, you know, it was a, it was quite an interesting way of doing things. You turned up at Easter at uh, Takapuna Beach with your boat, and you, on the year of the Olympics, and the winner of a seven race regatta went to the Olympics. So you had to perform on the day because it was all about winning that regatta. Nothing else mattered. So a lot of the build-up for me was to make sure everybody was used to being beaten by me. So I made very clear in every line-up, in every training session, for me it wasn't necessarily about striving for who could be the absolute best. I made sure I beat the guys I needed to beat every single time we went sailing so they got used to it and then when we went to the trials that's what happened once we'd done that I then teamed up with uh, Leith Armit who is a strong competitor and then we we went to like square one and we got every single mast we could find of the whole New Zealand fin fleet and we sailed, tested each one and selected the two best rigs that we found so the rig I used at the Olympics wasn't mine it was Leith's and uh, yeah so I think we went through a similar sharing everything and working together but we only did it in the sort of six months post the trials up until that point it was all done as an individual battle well you did qualify for the 1988 um, Olympics but I just want to maybe just take a couple of steps back um, and, you know, born in Manchester, still a Manchester City fan, apparently? Uh, yep, yep, you could say that. When did you come to New Zealand? In 74. Why? For the long, long story is um, my grandparents had immigrated down here when they retired my mother's twin brother had been down here since the mid-60s and my parents were keen to do something different so they immigrated in 74 and that's where I was a, a sailing family I mean how did you get into this no world? I'd never sailed before I don't even remember seeing a dinghy before but we happened to move to um just next to Murray's Bay Boating Club. And uh, they had a learn to sail weekend, one of the first weekends I ever showed up here and we did that and I wasn't any good, but it seemed quite fun, so that's what I did. When did you get serious about it? Uh, So probably took two years before I started to show any aptitude and um, so yeah so 77 Tower on a Cup probably was my first decent result 
Which was? Fourth. So I think we had uh, Dixon, Chris Dixon first, Russell Coots second, Hamish Wilcox third. Not Ready a bad fourth. little lineup there. So it wasn't too bad. It wasn't a bad little group back then. Did you sail together as a group as well? Um, Russell was down in um, Dunedin, so no, but everybody else, we sailed the season against each other and that sort of thing. Okay. So you were third at the 1980 Laser World Champs in mm-hmm. Canada as a 17-year-old. Mm. Um, I think, interestingly, Ed Beard of the US won that title and went on to become a pretty household name of professional sailing. Yeah. What did that result do for you? Um, it was a it was an incredibly good result. It was uh, the first of the laser worlds where you had multiple, you know, hundreds of competitors. So we had uh, seven fleets of fifty, and you would sail each fleet. So each fleet would sail each other. So that gave you the first. You know, in a hundred boat race each time, and then they take the top. We'll say the top hundred, and then you do another four races. So um, it was, it was a good, it was a good event. Kingston was good. You know, it was we we were fast. All the New Zealanders were quick then, and we had a good group. So um, yeah, was it dawning on you that maybe you were had a future in the sport? Not really. I just. Enjoyed it. I was going well. I sailed reasonably well at times and, you know, very immature at the same time. I was 17 or 18, so I didn't really overthink anything. I just went out and hiked and the results sort of came together. So I never really thought about, oh, I could be a, you know, a sailor or anything like that because the next, you know, the next international regatta I did, I think, was in '82, the Laser Worlds, and I was, I think, I don't think I made the top 30. So it was quite a, that was more of a, I probably learned more at that event than uh, I did at the first one. So then, how, why the change to the fin? Right. Okay. So the change to the fin came about as I done two laser worlds and a pacifics and a few nationals and the youth trials and there wasn't the lasers weren't at the olympics so the um the only step if you wanted to go to the olympics was um the fin and i'd been to a talk and when i was you know probably 76 um John Douglas came and gave a talk at Murray's Bay Boating Club. I think he was the reserve for the 76 games and he gave a talk about the Olympics and I was like, oh, Olympics. Never even thought of the Olympics. And that just was ticking, I guess, was just ticking over in the back of my mind that the Olympics could be something to do. And the um, so then the, it was like, oh, well, time to get a fin, time to eat a bit more and try and get stronger and uh, there was gen- there was a general transition that the laser was really only a, an intermediate stepping stone towards something else you either stepped out and didn't sail or you moved on to the fin and we would have you know there's probably 10 or 12 of us sailing a fin every weekend you know the good old days we'd go to Takapuna Boating Club and we'd rig up at the car park and 
go for sale and have a drink at the Mondesir afterwards and uh, drive home. So you did a similar training program to Andy Maloney as he transitioned from a, a laser to a fin? I think he was a bit more focused on, on bulking up. We just sort of stood around and ate pies at the, at the dairy back then and stuff. So Russell Coots went to the 84 Olympics, mm-hmm. famously won gold. Mm-hmm. Um, you got your ticket four years later for the 1988 Seoul Olympics. Um, I think uh, you'd been dominating the domestic scene. You'd been winning the national title from mm-hmm. 85 to 88. Mm-hmm. But you hadn't done all that well at the Finn Gold Cup at that time, I think, with the best result of ninth. Um, what were your expectations heading into those Olympics? With the, you know, my expectations, I genuinely thought that I was going well enough to win something. What we had, and you would think after several years of sailing, it just took me a long time to realise that some of the equipment, hull, rig, sails that I was taking over to Europe each year, thinking that it was a good step forward, actually wasn't that good. And uh, my best result at the Gold Cup was the first year I showed up and I chartered a boat and um, pretty much borrowed a bit of other kit and I sailed quite well. Once I got the following years, I brought my own boat thinking that that was better and it was, you know, quite a step backwards. Okay, but I didn't really realise it at the time. I just kept hiking harder and trying harder to get a better result. So the good news for me at the Olympics in 88 was that uh, all the equipment was supplied and they supplied, well, the hulls were supplied and they supplied a, a boat built by Hyundai Heavy Industries and that was a well-built boat, but it was quite an odd shape. And we were very fortunate that the year before we'd got um, a boat donated. I think Peter Corns paid for it. But anyway, we had a fin down in New Zealand made by Hyundai. So the moment the trials had finished, I hopped into that and started sailing. And Leith sailed my boat. And then we rolled through all the rigs and sails that we could find. And basically, I went out the weekend after the Olympic trials, put my rig and sail in, and I was the slowest person out there by a mile. And it took, you know, a full sort of six months of working really hard to get up to speed in this particular boat. And without leaf being there every day I wouldn't have achieved it but the good news was is when we went to the Olympics all the trick boats had disappeared everybody was down to not a very nice boat to sail really and um, I was quite comfortable with it so I went from being average to being quite fast and that's just how it went but it didn't start brilliantly though did it it was uh, what ninth and tenth in the yep. first two races yep. and there were only seven races in total yeah how were you sort of feeling about things at that early junction the ninth and tenth I, I think i blocked out what i was feeling but uh obviously not particularly 
happy about that. I think it was a case of not sailing well when the pressure came on. So like I think I was not sure what to expect and I just didn't do what I knew I could do. So what did you do? Just just tell yourself to relax a little bit more? I can't actually remember what. We, we definitely, Leith and I definitely would have talked about it in depth. But uh, things started coming right. I think the weather conditions changed a little bit that started going more in my favour. And then uh, things, you know, just started to come right a little bit better. Yeah, so you got two-fourths, an eighth, and then a race win leading into that mm. final race. What do you remember of that last race? Um, because it, in those days, it was the, the full fleet, wasn't it? Not a top 10 medal race like we see that, um, no, no, today. It was, it, was, it was the full fleet, and we did a triangle, windward lured triangle. And, you know, I can't even remember, but it seemed like the race was about two hours long, and it probably was. So it was just an epic endurance battle rather than today's um, high-intensity race. This was just a who could, whose knees could handle it the longest. Well, you won that race. Yep. Um. It, was, it was windy. So, you know, what, what had changed was the last few days was that the current which was pretty severe then, was starting to rip going to windward. So the beach started getting shorter and the downwind started getting longer and then the breeze increased a bit more so the waves got bigger as well. So you got two knots of current minimum going to windward, 20 knots going the other way, big standing waves. You know, downwind became more of a feature and I, I was always quick downwind, that was always how I sort of saved my regattas and races by being fast downwind and that just became more of a downwind race mm -hmm. and that's off we went. Well that win was enough for you to achieve, I think it was described as the best comeback of any sailor in Pusan at those games and you claimed the, the bronze medal. Yeah, what did it mean to you, you know, what was it like to stand on the podium? It was, it was, I mean, it was clearly really special. It was something I'd worked really hard for, for, you know, for four years, almost full time on that. And, you know, it was, a, it was a good way to finish my Olympic career. You know, it would have been tough to come fourth or fifth because then you'd be like, should I do it again? Can I do it again? Whereas this was a good way of just saying that's I've achieved that it's on to the next thing because I I never looked at the Olympics as it didn't really have any other goal than the Olympics there was no financial reward in it there was no leveraging into being a pro sailor because pro sailing didn't really exist back then so it was just a goal for the sake of it and once you'd done it there was I really couldn't see a reason of doing it a second time what did you think you were going to do after those games I went back uh, to the job that I had I went back to the sugar works and um, went back to work as a I was a project engineer by then okay I, I, I 
going to move on to the next phase shortly, but interestingly, uh, um, that regatta was one of your last in a fin, wasn't it? Um, it was my last. It was my last race. Yeah. Other than helping Craig Monk prepare Other, for the yep. next Olympics, yep. that Which, was it. That was it. And Craig, Craig asked me would I help him, and I said, sure, that would be great, you know. And then as time got closer, he said, oh, I've got a boat for you, and I'm like, well, hopefully it's got an engine type of thing, and and then he said, "Oh, I've got my. You can use my boat. I've got your rig. I've got sail for you. You know, I've got some hiking pants and a weight jacket for you, and off you go." And I had no expectation of ever sailing again. Fortunately, it was Barcelona, and it was generally quite light. But yeah, quite enjoyed getting back in actually. Were you? Were there ever any moments when you thought, oh, maybe I should have given it another crack? Not one. Not one. It was just, I mean, at the at the end of the '88 games, you know, you come back and you're just like, well, you've got no money, you've got no ability to buy anything or do anything or fund anything. And you look and you go, well, how am I going to do this better? Because doing it the same is not going to get you a better results. So you've got to do more or smarter. And there was no opportunity for um, figuring a way of paying for it. So I finished my Olympic campaign with $0.0. So I sold, sold two boats and some sails and, you know, off I went. That was it. On to the next thing. Well, the next thing was the America's Cup. Because in 1990, you joined Chris Dixon in the Nippon yep. Challenge as tactician yep. for the 92 America's Cup. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Um, obviously, I knew Chris when we were, at, we were at school together at Westlake. And after the Olympics, he said, oh, did I want to do some match racing. So I actually went and did the first match racing worlds in Fremantle with them as a main sheet trimmer. And you know, we managed to we beat Rod Davis and David Barnes in the last race. So that was quite, it was good fun and it was something different, something I knew nothing about. I knew nothing about keelboat sailing and didn't never seen a spinnaker pole, you know, all, all of that. So I was pretty raw on that but um, we did a few more regattas and just off and on when I could get time off work and then leading up to 1990 he'd been trying to become the skipper again for Team New Zealand and obviously that didn't work out he had a full back position with the uh, Japanese and he asked myself Mike Spanner and Earl Williams if we'd go up and um, join Nippon Challenge. So we had, uh, I think I had a week to quit my job of seven years. I'd started doing a MBA at Auckland University with uh, sort of being semi-sponsored by the company I worked for. So I'd done a week of an MBA. So I had to quit that and, you know, Lots of awkward conversations and it was all under pressure. The time was under pressure because we had to be in Japan by a certain date because that was the way the rules were written back then. If you're in Japan on this date, you could sail as a Japanese. So 
it was quite a flurry of um, sorting stuff out. Was the America's Cup ever had had that been something you'd given any thought to? No, zero thought. Never even thought about it. So what you know, what did that approach sort of did it change your outlook a little? It was. Um, I hadn't really thought about it. It never occurred to me that you could get paid to go sailing. So I was. It just seemed like quite an adventure to go off. It was only a two-year. It was a two-year project, and I thought at the age, taking two years out of my, you know, business career wasn't going to be the end all. It wasn't going to end it. Wasn't going to make any difference. So it was like great opportunity to go somewhere meet some different people do some different things so so how do you look back on that campaign I mean you, you look at the statistics you top the standings after the three round robins um, but eliminated at the semi-finals yep a little bit disappointing because we probably could have gone one step further I don't think um, you know we the boat was quite strange. We had a canard, no trim tab, that sort of thing. We were quite a strange boat compared with the rest of the fleet. And, you know, we were reasonably competitive, but it was just a bit diff too different, I think, compared to um, El Moro, who eventually won the Challenger Series. You were involved in the next one, um, was it Helmsman for the yeah, Long Challenge? Yeah. Mm. What what difference did that sort of responsibility bring? It's definitely um, a big difference in how much responsibility you've got between being tactician for Chris, who you know is good at taking the responsibility and he demands the responsibility. For me, that was a stepping across to driving the boat and being the, in practical cases, the skipper, that was quite a big step up and uh, different level of pressure and responsibility and leadership required. Did you cope with all of that okay? Um, I think in, in hindsight, not as well as I could have done because our results really weren't that good. We were the last boat into the semi-finals and we only made it by the skin of our teeth and we were not competitive against NZL 32, 38 or One Australia or even Tag Heuer. We just weren't, we just weren't that good. And our boat... Um, NZL, sorry, JPN 30, we'd already cut about 80% of the hull off and rebuilt the hull and then 41 which is still sailing around here that was finished and we decided that there was no point bringing it over because it wasn't going to be fast enough so it went back in the shed and had the hull cut off it and a new hull a new hull shape put on so both of those things is not something you would choose to do from a well thought out design program but that's what we did and we we made the semis but it was only by the narrowest margins I think we had to come from behind against the Spanish or something to 
beat them, and that was it was quite a battle. How much involvement, I guess, did the sailing team have in design and development, sort of in those days? I think a lot less than uh, was optimum, but I'm not sure that we actually knew enough to be very useful either. I think it was one of those early days where everybody's gaining, as each campaign went through, you'd gain more and more experience and then you could have better input back to the design team. The design t- designers' tools were getting better and better. People could see um, you know, the Team New Zealand approach where there was a tighter bond between the designers and the sailors was getting results. So I think designers became more open, sailors felt more comfortable putting it in, but probably where we were, we were still, you know, a full Japanese technical team and you had a, you know, a majority, you know, the leaders of the sailing team were non-Japanese, so I think the Japanese were expecting just to deliver a boat and we would sail it to victory and that system really didn't work may have worked in 92 or 85 or whenever, the, but it wasn't going to work by the time Team New Zealand got rolling with 30 and 38 and on to the next ones. Hmm. Well, you were involved in the next one, 2000, mm-hmm. back, of course, uh, in Auckland, but this time helming for America True. Mm-hmm. What was it like, I guess, to be helming an international team in your own sort of hometown? I thought it was quite fun actually. We had a we had a really good time. Like America True, we had some really great people sailing with us. It was a good, you know, very lean organisation. I think our total budget would have been ten million or something like that, in which we built a boat, we bought a second hand boat, we had a base, we had a travel lift, we had a boat shed, we had new sails, you know, we had a really good squad. And we had enough people, we could put two teams on the water when we rounded up anyone who was walking in the, past the boatyard. They'd be on the backup boat and off they went. So it was, we really had a good time. It was well run and, you know, done to a pretty small budget. Did you um, have a, a building profile, I guess, as a Kiwi with an international team as well? I think, yeah, I think there was interest in the in the media about that and that sort of thing. I mean, there was just a lot more because there were more teams, more foreign teams, more New Zealand, you know, more New Zealanders involved. We're all here for a year and a half, so there was just a lot more news about the America's Cup back then. It wasn't, you know, two weeks and it's over, almost like it is now. Two weeks of impressive stuff, but disappear because this was you know boats would be out every day sailing there'd be boats in and out of the shed new boats arriving we'd do our own little races there'd be things to see and then we'd all you know we'd be visible around town that sort of thing so it's a lot more I think there's probably more going on back then and I think the media you know there was more to see so the media was more involved as well we were probably more open Back then, we were all pretty relaxed. I don't think we knew too much, so we were just happy to get out there. 
So let's roll on another three years and oh, your on, fourth America's Cup campaign, this time with Oracle. Yeah. Um, and you were tactician, but also sailing director. What did, what did that mean? What did that entail? Mm. So it's, Oracle was, you know, it was a combination of a lot of people when Oracle was formed. So Chris Dixon was the um, skipper from, uh, you know, that's what Larry Ellison specified at the beginning. But then we ended up with, um, we bought out Paul Kayard's team. So that was America One with the green boats and the green spinnakers. And uh, we also had Peter Holmberg was involved, and then I, Tommaso Kiefi as well. So they needed somebody to try and control a lot of different egos and stuff. So I, I was employed as the sailing team director. So basically, I would allocate as best I could who got on which boat each day, and you know made sure what our program was for each day and sort of made sure the testing ran according to plan. So for a happy-go-lucky guy dealing with some egos, how, how did that go? It wasn't easy. I mean, that, I think, was, the, was, pretty, it was a pretty stressful campaign because uh, the expectations were, and rightly so, were very high. You know, we had far yacht designs as the designers, and, you know, I mean, it was a big squad high profile, lots of good sailors and Larry's just expecting to win. So um, That was his first foray into the yep. America's yep. Cup. He's obviously become very well known with the America's Cup um, largely with, you know, with big budgets and mm -hmm. big ambitions. What was it like to work with him, for him? It's a um, I mean he generally didn't have very much or almost no input until it got quite close to the end, and then uh, he 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 brought his powerboat down and he'd be there quite often and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it wasn't uh, you know he was he was a tough guy to uh, deal with. I mean his expectation was that he was going to race on the boat, so we quite early on figured that out. So we'd always make one of our two boats and all internal racing sail with 15 people and uh, the other boat would sail with 16 because one boat effectively would be carrying a person who you couldn't rely on to do you know too much all the time so we just said well let's just sail with 15 and if he can help that's going to be a bonus so that's how we used to race and uh, yeah well that was the closest you got to lifting the cup wasn't it um, knocked out in the Louis Vuitton Cup final. Finals, yeah, finals. Mm -hmm. Is it? Um, you know, you had another. I guess you could call it one and a half more campaigns um, involved with the Spanish mm -hmm. in two thousand and seven, mm -hmm. and then two thousand and nine, leading mm -hmm. into ten. Mm -hmm. What would have been? Mm -hmm. What kept drawing you back to the America's Cup over those twenty years or so? Part of it was that as each one you did, you could see so many things that you learned in that that you go, oh, I wouldn't mind, you know, I think I could make a better contribution to the squad next time around. So um, what I sort of thought with what the Spanish offered me was to um, 
work with their design team and sort of be the more of the interface between the technical team and the sailing team. So that's what I was employed to do. And um, as time went on, I ended up doing that and ended up as the tactician as well. So, um, but that wasn't the original plan. It was to be fully working towards working with the technical team in a more full-time role. So that, I saw that as quite a good stepping stone for me, leading towards a, a different future. But uh, that didn't happen. We, uh, we got asked to uh, be the challenger record for 2009, and um, you know, politically we dropped the ball massively on that and didn't, uh, didn't read the rules correctly, even though they were easy to... Uh, comply with so if you're the rules um, advisor now you'd be uh, well I would have said I would, I would look at it differently for sure and uh, it was grey whether we even complied with the rules in 2007 because we didn't actually represent a yacht club we represented the federation so whether that's grey or not but it, that's what we did in 2007 but no one did anything about it because I think everyone felt eventually we wouldn't make it through to the America's Cup. So I think if we'd beaten, if we'd been in the finals of the Louis Vuitton series, it probably would have come up again. So was the America's just Cup just something you did every three, five years, however, whatever the cycle was? You know, you would sort of organise your life around those yep. rotations. Yep, very much so. For whatever reason I managed to roll from one campaign to the next campaign for 20 years There's all, it's also got the reputation with the, you know, the legal challenges, the sort of the bickering, the fighting mm -hmm. um, the egos how, did you how did you I guess approach those kinds of uh, aspects to the to the cup, you know, was it something that you just sort of accepted or you didn't thought it was a bit distasteful at times? It's just, it just was always there. So things also changed a little bit. So when, when I started, it was, it was probably at its, you know, I hate to say it, probably 92 was its heyday in being an egalitarian organisation. So you had the defender set off to the side and he did his own thing. Because that's it was his job to organise the America's Cup and however he defended it, and on the other side you had the Challenger record. Well, in '92 I can't even remember who the Challenger record was, but they they set up a um, Challenger record committee, and each team sat on that committee with equal votes, and the committee employed a director and a you know a couple of people who organised us all, called the meetings made sure we didn't bully anybody around and basically ran it and you ended up with a super efficient challenges body. They raised their own money to um, fund their event and off they went. So the Louis Vuitton funded the Challenger Record who organised the Challenger Record Committee and we all sat in on all the meetings. So for whatever reason I used to go to those meetings as you know a rep for Nippon along with various other people but uh, so if you look that's how it started 95 was the same and then uh, once it got to uh, New Zealand who was the um, 
the defender started getting more involved in the challenger series just started slowly or you know we'd have they'd have a joint organizing body for the defender and the challenger so that's the first step of the challengers giving up their power and then you know it's just got more and more extreme so now the challenger record really doesn't have has some say but the defenders grabbed the challengers event almost 100% now well they sail in it now don't they so you know in the good old days the challenger we never would have sailed against a defender we never sailed against them it was it just a straight no mm. So, uh, you know, in those five and a half campaigns, did you have always have multiple options over that period? No, no. Generally, I think it was difficult to end up with multiple options of who you went sailing for and whether it was, for whatever reason, I would, the first or second option that came up that looked reasonable and looked like it could go the distance and would have you know a reasonable shot of uh, being competitive I would say yep and as long as that and if I was asked to do something interesting and stuff like that then yeah I'd just say oh, yeah, be that'd be good. Was there ever any interest from Team New Zealand? No surprisingly not they were always pretty clear that they weren't interested so how did you react to that? I can see why, because how many helmsmen, tactician, you know, somebody who's interested in being a technical coordinator but has never done the job, you know, like how many people do they need in the team? They've got their squad. So, you know, that's just the way it is, you know. I mean, unless you're part of... You know, the Team New Zealand group's a pretty tight little circle. So if you've never been in it, it's pretty hard to get in. Especially at the you know, level that you're looking to take responsibility. Have you been approached since, I guess, that 2010 by any teams? You know, the game's changed, obviously, a lot mm-hmm. since uh, Valencia. Yep. Um, or have you kind of tried to see if you had a place in, in any of those America's Cups either? No, I've not made any attempt. I think uh, the whole 2009, whatever you want to call it, where we were the challenger of record and um, you know dealing with Oracle and Alinghi and stuff like that was a pretty distasteful experience. So I was, you know, at the time when it ended, I was quite happy that it was over and I could do something different. Like it was, it all was quite personal. You know, the way it was run with the, um, you know, just the way personal attacks and personalities were drawn into the whole thing. It It wasn't an easy thing to be involved in and once it was over it was it was actually quite a weight off your shoulders and we, we moved back here at that point and um, looked at doing different things. What do you make of the game now? Well, with them leaving or... Who knows? Who knows? I mean, I think... I mean, they've come up with an incredibly complicated, very interesting boat and um, it clearly gave... 
better racing, I mean, personally, than I was expecting. But you can also see some pretty strong limitations of the boat that they've created and the size of the racetrack and stuff like that on certain aspects of the racing and the, the timing on the pre-start and stuff like that was, you know, pretty dull, really. Wasn't much going on there, I thought, compared with what they could have done. So, yeah, but you've got to win it to write the rule book. So, you know, it's up to them now what they do. It is a bit of a... It does feel to me that they've made it by design so expensive that you know it's really difficult to make it sustaining which you, which you know they've proven here that the government says yeah you can have in kind for up to 100 million and they go well I need 200 million well you choose to make a 200 million dollar event that's a choice you could have made a 100 million dollar event if they choose to you could make a 50 million dollar event if you chose to it's a choice by the people who are making these decisions they've chosen you know you look at how many billionaires are there in the world it's what a thousand two thousand well only three wanted to play last time I mean that's you know saying something isn't it well you know if you're spending two hundred million dollars for and not not gonna win you know fair enough Good luck. They're not necessarily going to keep coming back. Well, the America's Cup wasn't the only thing you did. Um, you did plenty of other sailing in that period, and there was uh, just pulled out some of the highlights. You're a two-time Admirals Cup winner, three-time World Match Racing champion, mm. Mum 36 World Champion, yeah. eight yeah. meter World Champion, Maxi World Champion, mm -hmm. and a regular on the TP52 circuit. Mm -hmm. What was that lifestyle like? Because I'm guessing it meant a lot of regattas, a lot of travel, you know, a lot of pressing the flesh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds, you know, it sounds good, but you'd end up by spending. So we were, by the time I started sailing, um, only on the sort of the pro circuit. That was after my final America's Cup because up until that point I would sail only on things that I was allowed to go and do because the number one priority was always keep testing these AC boats so um, there's a lot of travel the travel gets to you and you try and so therefore you try and back up regatta tied up with another regatta which is tied up with another regatta so you you have to go through the process of doing an event finish the event pack up your sailing gear hop on the plane appear on another boat with different with some of the same people some different people people off boats you've just been racing against but a different owner race and then carry on and do that and that's that's not easy to do it's not easy to establish a you know a close relationship with the owners and um, and have that social um, bond with them so it's it's not I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's the easiest job in the world it might sound quite good going off here there and everywhere and staying in nice hotels and nice dinners and stuff but it's 
it's pretty cutthroat and if you don't perform or you have a bad result or you make a blunder you can get cut you know same day is that why you once called I guess the life of a pro sailor precarious it is pretty precarious it is very precarious because you um, you don't it doesn't run as you generally don't run it with a contract and even if you do it's quite hard to enforce and um, it's it's basically at will employment so they ask you to commit to a certain number of events, a certain number of days in the year. So you would go, yep, and you'd agree. So you block out those days. Somebody else comes along and says, oh, I wouldn't mind you doing these. And there we have a clash. So you could turn those that other boat down because of conflict. But after your calendar could open up really quickly, if the owner changes his mind or wants to do something else or doesn't want to sail the rest of the season, it's it's not an easy thing. You'd struggle to get a mortgage based on your employment. But you're still professional sailing, so you must enjoy many aspects of it. Yep, yep. I went through... I mean, I go through... Um, phases, how should we say you know, cycles of enjoyment or not so much enjoyment. So after 2016, because I was doing more and more coaching with JJ for the Olympics and coaching with the, um, you know, with the Finns and stuff, and I was quite, and, I'm, and I still do, I was enjoying that. So I actually tried and moved myself a little bit away from sailing as a tactician all the time to more coaching and um, you know, just stepping back a little bit from the boat, and um, yeah, so I did more and more of that, and a little bit less sailing, so a little bit more balanced, fifty-fifty between coaching and actual racing, and um, and then we reached a point where you start to look and go, well, I'm away from home two hundred days a year, and I'm approaching sixty. And you start to ask, well, why am I doing that? So we went through that. So now I just do one, you know, so it ends up where I am now, where I just do one boat for a Turkish owner. And um, I started off coaching that boat. And for whatever reason, he asked me to steer it. And, you know, this will be my, including COVID year, this will be my third season, assuming we can get it going. And, uh, you know, I've really probably got the greatest pro sailing job around. It's a TP-52. It's got everything you can possibly imagine. We've got a really nice crew. We're a combo of um, amateur Turkish friends of the owner. And we have um, a fairly international group of people as well. Also a couple of Kiwis on board. Yeah, yep. Hamish Pepper Hamish and Daryl, uh, Daniel Fong. Yep, Fongo, he lives just around the corner, so I've sailed with Fongo quite a bit on the Bellamente and stuff, and he was on, I'm pretty certain he was one of our backup sailors for America True back then. And, um, yep, with Pepsi as well, which is a lot of fun. He, you know, so now I'm just, I drive the boat and do the best I can, but, you know, we go, we go pretty well now. We've really... We sort of try and make sure we, it's really 
needs to be really enjoyable, low stress, make sure everyone has a good time. But we are reason we're pretty competitive as well, I think. So that's really what we're aiming to do, make sure the owner and his friends enjoy their social time. So what sort of responsibility do you feel to make sure the owner has a nice time and the friends, you know, and did you does that sort of social aspect of being the houndsman or skipper or whoever or the coach, does that come naturally? It's not particularly natural for me, I would say. It's not my you know, most natural thing. I'm happy to do my job and then, you know, the late dinners and stuff like that's not something I'm really that great at. I'm normally we're normally in very nice parts of the world so getting up early and you can go for an awesome bike ride and be back in time for breakfast and go sailing or on the coach boat is probably a little bit more what I would prefer to do but um, our owners he's a good guy and we we sit you know I have dinner with him every single night and we chit chat away and you know when we're sort of get to about 11 o'clock we say right it's up we've got a sale tomorrow and uh, you know he'll keep going with his friends and uh, but we have a it's a good time to where you've got the olympics when does the well when is it scheduled to start the tp52 series so we are uh, doing a training session in valencia so before the olympics so uh, we we broke our mast in 2019 i think and our mast has made it southern spars down the road here so that chased the boat around all of 2020 so it didn't make it to south africa for our first event it uh, then we got canned for covid and then the boats eventually left cape town and went back to the uk back to spain well our mast was stuck on a ship outside of durban so it missed that, and then it's just been chasing us around. So we actually haven't sailed with it yet. So we need to have a look at it since it's, you know, it's uh, been sitting there for a while. So we're going up there to um, test it out, make sure our new sails fit, make sure everything goes, and then uh, after five days, the the owner comes in and we'll do a bit of crew work and we should have a couple of other boats to sail against and um, just shake the dust off and see how we get on. But it'll be nice back in Valencia. It's a nice place. It's quite, it's quite a male-dominated world, isn't it, the TP52, and, and a lot of professional sailing. I think there are only two females that I found in, in the team lineups this year and one's an owner-driver. Um, but in the Mer- in 2000 America's Cup, you're with America True, and it's one of the only teams in America's Cup history to ever have a mixed crew. Mm-hmm. What do you think needs to be done to, I guess, address the, the gender imbalance in professional sailing? It does seem that, um, you know, when you consider Bill Coke had a full women's team in 95, and they were incredibly unlucky to be beaten by Dennis Connor. In fact, they had Dennis Connor on the ropes and they let him, politically, they let him change his boat. If they just left him to it, they would have been the defender. Um, 
we lined up against them just in passing one day and it, we were incredibly uh, depressed after that because they were so much quicker than we were. So, um, yeah, and then from that, Dawn Riley set up a team with uh, Chris Coffin as the guy who funded it and um, it was called America True. And uh, we had uh, Leslie Ignott was with us and we had uh, Dawn plus uh, two other girls on the boat. Katie and um, Lisa, I think it was. So it was a great time. Really, as I said, we all enjoyed our experience at America True. And uh, but you look now, it seems almost impossible for um, women to get that first break into pro sailing, which is uh, disappointing. So I guess. Probably the only way to do it, to make forward progress, is just have to allocate quotas until um, the experience gets up there enough and that um, you don't need a quota anymore because you just say, oh, I want that person and I don't care who they are, that's the person I want on my boat. Mm. What would your advice be to any young sailor, male or female, who's got sort of an idea of becoming a pro sailor what do they need to do it's not something that seems to be very easy to break into because like it or not it's still full of people like myself basically there's still a lot of my peers people I sailed p-class against starlings against are still pro sailors to this day so you're dealing we haven't all quite a few of us have moved on but there's still quite a few just taking roles and stuff with you know so I would say in simple terms it's you've got to be personable but you need to be multi-skilled so you need to come in with more than just um, the good sailing skills you do need to have another potential career option that you uh, tick away at. Um, I think that working in the industry might be a, an easier way to break in to pro sailing. So you work in the marine industry, sail making, mast making, rigging, whatever it is, but trying to at least have another role that you can always fall back on if... Um, there's not a lot of work out there because at the moment I don't see pro sailing in a particularly booming thing. So you've got RC44s, great. You've got a few TPs around, but we're we're not in, a, in a, an expanding mode at the moment. We're in a bit of a holding or even contracting a little bit. The Wallies that used to employ lots of people, they all threw the toys out of the pram so they used to get 15 or 18 boats at the worlds and now you know that 70 to 120 footers they're not sailing as much so it's it's difficult and to try and do it based out of New Zealand I'd put it in the too hard category unfortunately you need to be based out of the states or Europe so that you are cheap and easy to get what about you what plans have you got for the future in terms of sailing 
got TPs this year, hopefully. COVID willing, we could say. But uh, So there's three events in the TP circuit. So that should be, um, should be a lot of fun. And after multiple years of not sailing for fun, I've um, taken it up by in the process of getting an okay dinghy and um, that's going to be my um, sort of summer projects. I've been doing a few events and uh, the okay fleet has been incredibly welcoming so they've lent me boats and gear and been really open about you know people I would have just met in passing just say I'll use my boat I'm not here this weekend just take it and been so generous so uh, at the moment I'm um, Matthew Mason's building me a boat down at the old Tecnopena Boating Club and it should be ready at some point. So will you reprise those old fin days and go down and dominate them so that uh, you psychologically crush them? No those days are gone I just go out for for fun I I quite like the practicing the racing side of it you know I'm pretty relaxed about now. I'm not really that uh, fussed on this. I mean, there's some really quite good sailors in the OK dinghy fleet, and a lot of them have been sailing for 20 the boat for 20 years, and they're only and they're 20 years younger than me. So you've got to look at the practical things, and I'm a bit small as well, so that doesn't help. And uh, the MBA, how's that coming along? I think I'll survive without doing it. <laughs> yeah, that was um, it was good to do or start do and go through the process of trying to um, get accepted and stuff like that. It was quite it was quite tricky to get in. I'm guessing that maybe down the line there might be a, a candidate for worst wipeout ever with your uh, OK dinghy sailing, but. Um, at that point of the interview, I just need to ask you what has been your worst wipeout ever? Worst wipeout? The most annoying or costly wipeout would have been um, one of the races in the Olympics where I um, were going downwind, obviously, and uh, just caught the wave badly. Boat nose dived, and I slid forwards, lost my footing, and ended up crashing by the mast as the boat capsized and um, by the time I got that thing upright and going it was um, probably cost me four or five places in the race and that uh, was quite annoying. Was that one of the first two races? No it wasn't actually. Was that the eighth? That was the eighth because uh, otherwise it would have been much better. Yeah you could have been another step up the podium huh? Well if it's in the last race if we'd finished it at different points in the race, I could have been in any spot from three to one because everyone else capsized as well in that race because it was windy, really windy. Mm. Coulda, shoulda, woulda, huh? It's, see, uh, they don't count. You see, that's the thing. It's the story of uh, yacht racing, isn't it? It is. So all you got to, you can't worry about what could have happened. You can only worry about what did happen and how you dealt with it. Well, it's been really interesting to talk about what has happened with you um, and also a little bit about what could happen. So thank you so much for your time and, and for joining us on Broadreach Radio. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been good.
Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it on social media and take a look back through some of the previous episodes. And please feel free to get in touch with your feedback and suggestions by emailing me at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll catch you in a fortnight for the next one. Take care.